0: Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now for your host, Paul Marquis.
1: Hello and welcome to episode thirty-one of the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Markey. And before I get started today into this thirty-first uh, episode, I thought I'd give a couple thank yous out there, and uh, especially to those folks who have been uh, making some comments, doing some ratings and reviews on uh, iTunes. So first of all, we have an NP from New Hampshire. We have Isaiah Player 926, and uh, we have Truck Driver Hat. Thank you all for uh, the, the great comments, and uh, I'm glad that you're enjoying the content, and uh, I hope that uh, you know everything we bring out in the future will be fruitful for you and beneficial. Other folks I wanted to, um, to thank today were some of the countries that listen to this. Like I live on the Canadian border up here in northern Maine. We're pretty secluded, and uh, I just I, I really want to thank everybody out there who uh, who is listening. so our number one listeners are those folks from the USA, but pulling up a very close second would be Canada, and I truly believe it's because of my accent. I'm a little franco American also, um, and I grew up with Canada in my backyard, so I'm there all the time. Uh, so thank you, Canada, for being a close second. Then we have Norway, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, the UK. Japan, China, uh, Germany, and uh, many other countries who have been uh, listening and, uh, and watching uh, our podcast episodes. So thank you so much for um, joining in with us. I really appreciate that. Um, so today I have a special treat for you. Uh, we have Dr. Jessica Aronowitz, who is going to be uh, sitting in our show today. We're going to talk a little bit about shoulder arthroplasty. Uh, Dr. Aronowitz, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me, Paul.
1: Well, Dr. Aronowitz is a, a fellowship-trained shoulder specialist, and uh, she works at Eastern Maine Medical Center. She does the, the, primarily the shoulder and elbow. And uh, we met, uh, I think, probably like four or five years ago, correct?
0: Yep, about five years ago almost.
1: Yeah, and it seems like it was just yesterday. Um, and I, I remember our first meeting, it was kind of interesting. We, we really had a sit down and just kind of I don't know, maybe tested each other and quizzed each other a little bit about what we both knew and kind of the techniques that we like to use. And uh, it really turned into a relationship that worked really well as far as, you know, getting patients in expeditiously, uh, getting the right types of people uh, in the right places at the right time, would you say?
0: I absolutely agree with you. It's been great.
1: Yeah, awesome. So um, so tell me a little bit about, yeah, I mean, you you do a lot of shoulders and uh, and I understand you do a lot of uh, total shoulder replacements. Yeah. Um, talk to me a, a little bit about your history with uh, with your practice and what you primarily see and, and uh, kind of some numbers on how many of these folks are arthroplasty patients.
0: Yeah, so I've been here almost five years. I did a fellowship in shoulder and elbow surgery at the Mayo Clinic, and a lot of that fellowship was focused on shoulder arthroplasty. In my practice now, I actually probably do about three to six per week of arthroplasty, so it, it constitutes a, a large portion of my practice uh, and my shoulder practice. It's been growing and growing, um, as you know. You know, shoulder replacements aren't as common as hip or knee replacements, um, but for me, I do them routinely, and I you know I do them every week.
1: Great, great. That's a that's a pretty huge number, actually. Yeah. Um, so, you know, let's talk about the the type of patient that you would see. Who is at highest risk of uh, developing glenohumeral arthritis, or somebody who is in need of a uh, a shoulder replacement?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and I I still don't have a great answer for who's at highest risk. And I only say that because I see as many arthritic shoulders in non dominant non-laborers you know uh, little old ladies who've never had any problems have terrible arthritis as as i do in in people that have really done heavy work and heavy lifting their entire lives Uh, so some of it is genetic factors some of it is uh, if you've had a previous uh, rotator cuff tear or a broken proximal humerus uh, certainly that can accelerate the arthritic process Uh, but there is a lot that we that we still don't know and i think people who are having a, a hard time with pain that, that doesn't necessarily go away uh, with stiffness in the shoulder uh, could potentially have arthritis. And it's it's really one of those conditions that, uh, you know, is, is made very clear with something as simple as an x-ray.
1: Right, so. right. So I, you know, th- through my experience, I've been at this for over 25 years And it seems like these people who have had old rotator cuff repairs or maybe failed repairs or people who've had chronic rotator cuff tears who just never had them repaired seem to really be at high risk of developing, you know, an arthritis in the glenohumeral joint and which leads into, you know, this disabling uh, shoulder motion and and pain all the time. Um, But so... I guess where I'm going with that is like when I see people with adhesive capsulitis or people who just haven't used that shoulder very much, I'm a pretty big stickler about obtaining full and good quality range of motion as much as possible to help prevent that future uh, glenohumeral, you know, uh, arthritis.
0: Yeah, I I agree. So I think that, you know, there's two, two sort of different categories of of shoulder arthritis. And, And one is that wear and tear arthritis, which really involves the glenohumeral joint and not as much of the rotator cuff. Uh, Then there are the patients that, as you mentioned, have an old rotator cuff injury that grows into a big rotator cuff problem or a previous repair. And their arthritis develops essentially because of the lack of stability from from not having a, a functioning rotator cuff. And that's in the category of rotator cuff arthropathy Uh, and certainly I think um, the, with the prevalence of rotator cuff tears uh, that, that that is becoming more and more common. And I certainly see that routinely in my practice.
1: Right, right. Now, there's two different, I take it as two different types of arthroplasty. Um, Can you, can you explain the difference between the two? And um, if you can talk a little bit about, you know, who is the perfect candidate or who is a better candidate for one over the other?
0: Sure. So there's, there's two different kinds. And the the first one is, is what we call an anatomic or a standard total shoulder arthroplasty. And the way, way I explain it to patients is, I basically put the head where the head was and smooth out the socket and put the socket uh the the, the plastic socket where the their previous socket was so we keep the parts in the same orientation and just replacing it with metal and plastic. And to do that really everything else in the shoulder has to be well functioning the rotator cuff the bone stock uh th- things of that nature and that's that's a total shoulder replacement. We've been doing those here for many many years we have good long-term data on it and it's, a, it's an excellent operation the other operation is the reverse shoulder replacement which is a little bit newer we've been doing them here in the united states since 2004 over in europe they've been doing it a lot longer and that's really developed as an arthroplasty for people with a deficient rotator cuff um, the, when the bone quality isn't very good when there's a lot of bone loss in the setting of proximal humerus fractures and and all the sequelae that that happens from that. Uh, In addition, people that might be at risk for rotator cuff issues later on um, might get a reverse shoulder replacement. So if I have a particularly older person where I'm concerned about their rotator cuff heading into surgery, I might elect to do a reverse shoulder replacement uh, to protect them from that in the future and needing a revision surgery. So we're we're still the 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 longer term data on the reverse is still out is still pending, um, but the ideal candidate is someone at least in their mid sixties I'd say early seventies uh, for that operation. And and that being said, I've done them in people older and and younger. If there really are no other surgical options, I just have a, a very detailed conversation with that patient.
1: Yep. Now, just out of curiosity, why do you think that the Europeans have been doing the surgery longer than we have?
0: Well, they, they started it was uh, invented over there uh, and then they started doing it uh, about a decade before we actually had FDA approval here. So I think that's that's why we lag behind. But I have to say that they talking with our European colleagues and their data. That the sort of what, what they're saying is the more they're doing of them, the more they're doing of them, that the data really uh, is supportive of, of doing these and, and people continue to do very well 20 years down the road.
1: Right, right. Okay, great. Um, I I do know that the ones that we have seen have done excellent, they really seem to gain their motion faster. And, um, you know, especially with those deficient patients, they they really uh, start to gain and uh, do well, impressively well.
0: Yeah, they're both they're both. uh, I, I think when when done well, they're great operations. I've seen patients, particularly with, you know, with arthritis and rotator cuff deficiency, who haven't been able to lift their arm to shoulder level for years. And then, you know, six weeks or eight weeks after this operation, they're touching the top of their head, they're reaching into the cabinet, things they haven't done in years. And it really, it really can change people's lives that way. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now let's talk about people with uh, avascular necrosis of the shoulder. Do you see that? And do you opt to do one particular procedure over another when when you see this type of problem?
0: Yeah, so avascular necrosis is, is less common. Uh, certainly, that's that's way down on the list in in my practice, at least for Uh, Common causes of shoulder arthritis. And in the shoulder, uh, it's a little bit different than in the hip. But what I tend to do is uh, assess the patient's symptoms. And typically, by the time they become quite symptomatic, the avascular necrosis has led to some arthritic change in the shoulder, particularly on the humeral head. And we talk about doing a shoulder replacement. And then, whether that's just replacing the head, or doing a complete shoulder replacement. I I discussed that with the
1: patient. Right, right. Now, I've done a uh, podcast uh, not too long ago about all the different special tests of the shoulder, you know, everything like uh, the near sign impingement test, the uh, Huck and Kennedy and and dislocation, relocation test, all that stuff. Um, Now, when we're dealing with arthritis of the shoulder, there really isn't a special test out there for you right. know, glenohumeral arthritis. So what kinds of signs and symptoms do you look for? If you see somebody come in straight off the street, they've never been MRI'd or x-rayed, they haven't seen a, you know, a specialist and they're coming into your office, what kinds of complaints and signs and symptoms do you look for that may uh, gear you in the direction of saying, hey, this person has arthritis and we need to assess and evaluate that?
0: Yeah. So it, it, you're, you're absolutely right, Paul. It can be, uh, it can be difficult. So the things that I look for, the the description of pain, it tends to be more deep inside the joint versus cuff pain, which I I, I really feel that cuff tears, people grab the lateral part of their shoulder over the deltoid. Um, And then it's pain that, you know, it's rare that I see an arthritic patient that comes to me with pain for two weeks after a fall. It's, you know, it's been getting worse and worse, and they've been putting it off. And now, it, you know the, the pain is getting worse, and their functionality has decreased. And that that's one of the key things too is that that subtle and progressive loss of motion, uh, which which we see in arthritis, and that's that's because of capsular contracture and and osteophytes as it relates to the arthritis. So completely separate than a frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis. But I, I have to say that I mean at times if you have a fifty five year old woman with exactly the picture that I portrayed, it could be frozen shoulder or it could be. Arthritis, and there's one simple thing we can do to tell the difference, and that's an x-ray,
1: right. you know,
0: um, and so loss of external rotation, some loss of forward elevation, those kind of things, um, but those can be seen with other conditions too, so that's, that's why everybody that, that comes in for an evaluation of their shoulder, you know, I, I, I routinely get x-rays.
1: Yeah. And I'll be the first to admit, you know, I did make a mistake about 15 years ago with a patient and uh, he had come in basically with shoulder pain and uh, looked exactly like somebody who had an adhesive capsulitis we treated him for about a week. He had, you know, the loss of motion in all positions, discomfort in the shoulder on a regular basis. And it was a steady progressive onset. Um, And, uh, you know, typically with frozen shoulder we will stretch these folks and they'll progressively do better. This guy got worse in the course of a week. Um, We got an x-ray and it was a, uh, you know, he had complete cartilage loss in his shoulder and uh, he ended up having a total shoulder replacement. So, um, you know, I, I just for the people out there listening to the podcast today, I think you should always be cautious. Um, if you think it's a frozen shoulder, uh, listen to the shoulder. A significant crepitus, cracking, Absolutely. and 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 arthritic shoulders seem to have more of a quote unquote clunking um, type of uh, feel when you're moving them. So painful crepitus, you really need to be thinking uh, glenohumeral arthritis.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to add one thing to that. I some patients they feel that. They'll describe it as, they, as their shoulder slipping out and it's not. It's arthritic and it's crepitous or literally, I think the osteophytes are kind of catching and that's what they're feeling, but it, it feels like it's popping in and out. And, and you do not see that with adhesive capsulitis. Adhesive capsulitis is really a problem of pain and stiffness. If there's really any crepitus with, with range of motion or strength testing, I, I, I don't you know I think it's definitely more of an arthritic problem than that.
1: Yep. Uh, Oftentimes, when people have glenohumeral arthritis, they also have AC joint arthritis. Do you address that when you do a uh, uh, arthroplasty?
0: That's a great question. I only address it if it's symptomatic. So, I routinely see asymptomatic arthritis on on X-rays and and on patients over 40 years old. It's just one of those things that we see radiographically, and it's a lot less common that it's actually one of the primary complaints in the shoulder. Uh, I'd say in in less than 5% of my my arthroplasty cases do I do an, a, a distal clavicle excision but I have done it and I always check that before surgery as well. All
1: right, all right. Um, something else that I've seen over the last couple of years when people have these reverse total shoulders uh, is that they seem to have a lot less pain than patients who have rotator cuff repairs. Yep. Can you can you give me a little insight on that and maybe why they would uh, why that would be?
0: Well, uh, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think that of the surgeries I do, which, you know, predominantly consists of arthro- arthroscopy, arthroscopic rotator cuff repairs, and then reverse shoulder replacements, revision shoulder replacements, and then anatomic total shoulders, even though the arthroscopy is the least invasive of all of those, uh, it can be the most painful with the longest recovery. And I think it has to do with some of the, perhaps some of the uh, nerve endings in, in the proximal humerus where you're actually, you know, putting in anchors and stitches and things like that versus a shoulder replacement. But I, I tell people that of, of all the surgeries that I do, the reverse shoulder replacement actually has the quickest and possibly easiest recovery. I immobilize them a lot less time than my cuff repairs or other shoulder replacements. I get them moving more quickly. And that's just because of the nature of the implant uh, compared with things, you know, w- with other surgeries.
1: Right, right. I totally, totally agree with you. People have this idea that, oh, I'm having a shoulder replacement. It's going to be dramatic and it's going to be you yeah. know, uh, traumatic also. And, uh, they, but come to find out, they just they really do well and they do well yeah. a lot faster.
0: Uh, yeah, um, I would say at two weeks, and, and I've even had this routinely even the, the, the day following surgery, but when we see them back, which is within 10 to 14 days from surgery, the arthritic patients, they, they tell me that their shoulder already feels better than it has in years already. And it, it hasn't, you know, it's barely been two weeks from surgery, which is really remarkable. It's it's a yeah. great operation for pain relief.
1: Yeah, it's gratifying to, to yeah. get that, you know, that yeah. real quick response like that. So when you do a uh, total shoulder replacement, like the standard total shoulder, do you ever remove the tubercles and put them back on? And the reason I ask this is because, you know, if you if you're doing a reverse total shoulder and you have complete cuff damage and you don't repair any of that cuff, then we as therapists don't really need to worry about re-tearing that tissue that has just been repaired. So let's talk a little bit about some of the precautions and the contraindications after um, either of those surgeries. And this is not just for therapists, but this is for your providers like uh, nurse practitioners and, and PAs who may see a patient as you know, just for a general physical or something like that, maybe a couple weeks after surgery. And I've actually seen folks um, at the family practice level, ask patients to lift their arm as high as they can two weeks after surgery, which is a total contraindication. Um, So let's, can we talk about some of those precautions just so that we don't injure patients soon on after surgery?
0: So we can start with the, with the standard that the total shoulder replacement, In order to do that operation, um, the the first thing is that I go through the subscapularis and and most of us do manage the subscapularis in one way or another. And then after the surgery, we repair it. And so really the initial post-operative course is designed to protect the subscapularis repair. So I have patients avoid really external rotation past neutral. I don't want them to lift their arm too much. I don't want them pushing their arm, you know, up out of, you know, using their arm for, for activities really. Um, because if, if the subscapularis gets damaged early on, it it really, uh, unfortunately, it really affects their outcome in a negative way. So with the total shoulder replacements, I I keep them in a sling for four to six weeks. This is just how you know people do things differently, but I avoid forced internal rotation uh, and and really do and emphasize passive range of motion to protect the subscapularis <clears throat> and the rest of the cuff. You know, should be working quite well if if we have done a total shoulder. So as they progress in therapy, uh, and and time from surgery, I'm less worried about about the remainder of the rotator cuff, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. But for the first six weeks to three months, we do protect the subscapularis. Now, if any of that, you know, if I'm having to repair tuberosities or questioning their rotator cuff, then then I go to a reverse shoulder replacement. And so that the, the precautions there are a little bit different. Uh, There's sometimes there's, there is no subscapularis to repair, uh, especially in the setting of advanced rotator cuff arthropathy. So it's less about protecting the rotator cuff, but there's um, early complications with the reverse can, can really be with dislocation. Um, Fortunately, I haven't really seen that in the primary setting, but it's been reported. And those are things where patients, if they do forced um, abduction with x with internal rotation uh that, that they can dislocate and so the precautions for reverses early on are designed much like a total hip replacement uh dislocation precautions and i i try to tell patients to avoid that position re- reaching in your back pocket reaching for your wallet tucking in your belt loop uh for the first 12 weeks from surgery
1: right all right all right um so thank you that's very important and i think that um what we do from our end is, and we're pretty particular about the rehab on, on shoulders and many other problems, but we always get an operative report and Mm -hmm. um, that's where having good communication with the uh, physician, especially who is doing the surgery is very, very important and they should feel comfortable that we can look at that report and identify maybe those structures that were repaired. Oftentimes we might get a diagnosis that says, you know, Shoulder replacement or rotator yeah. cuff repair. And right. if we don't know specifically what was repaired, yeah. we could actually damage those patients. So um, just a, a word for all of you listeners out there, um, make sure you get that operative report. That's very, very important to look at, and uh, that will uh, make the success of your patient much better, and the outcomes will uh, will be uh, very good. So... Um, Something we have started, and um, we really did a lot of this with you, is this three-day post-op shoulder program. And I have a podcast about this, uh, probably uh, nine or ten podcasts back. So if you ever want to go back and listen to it, uh, go ahead and do that. Uh, This is a very helpful uh, program that we developed. You know, a total hip and total knee replacement patients, they have surgery, and then they go to uh, the inpatient department, and uh, they are seen by a therapist for three or four days. Then they may go home and have skill. Care for three or four days, or go to a skilled care facility and they have care afterwards. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you do shoulder replacement or either rotator cuff repairs, they're placed in a sling. And they go home and they may not come back, you know, from anywhere between two to eight weeks after surgery. Um, and and not really have any follow-up on how to do things. Now it, the shoulder can be pretty sensitive afterwards and you could re-damage the shoulder after surgery pretty easily. So what we've developed is this three day post op program. And I'm just wondering from from your feedback that you've had from patients, how do you think it's working?
0: I think it's been it's been tremendously helpful. And those patients that, that can be seen three days following surgery. One, just to make sure that the sling is on right. You know, I use a sling and most often an, an abduction pillow and there's a lot of straps and, uh, you know, it can be quite confusing. Uh, and then also just to give them, a, you know, a little bit of preparation for what's ahead. Uh, shoulder surgery, and I tell this to people all the time, but it's a lot different than a, a knee arthroscopy where recovery, if you have a you know, a quick knee scope for a meniscal injury without a repair, it's, it's a quick, you know, your, your job is to just get up and walk around and the shoulder is a little bit different than that. And the recovery can be slower. And so I think the three-day post-operative checks have been great for uh, wound evaluation, sling management, and then just to really prepare the patient for what's, what's coming ahead.
1: Yeah, and what we typically do is we answer questions at that time. You know, they've had a couple days home, and they yep. end up usually sleeping in a recliner. They may be uncomfortable, or they're like, you know, how do I shower? Uh, what we've done yeah. here at our clinic is we've developed an eight-video like an eight-video series on how to do all those things. You know, the do's and don'ts. Like, don't actively elevate your shoulder. Don't actively uh, abduct the shoulder. And you know, how to wash, how to how to take a shower, how to change a shirt. Uh, how to go from a recliner to sleeping in a bed, and the best positions to do that, in the safest positions to do that in. So, um, and then just by answering those questions, it seems like these folks, uh, they leave, they're re- they're relieved. They don't, they're always fearful they're going to hurt something or damage oh. something. And when we teach them, they just feel much more confident and uh, much more comfortable afterwards.
0: Yeah. And just one thing to add about that, I I do a lot of preoperative education. They actually come to my office for a preoperative visit where we go through everything in a lot of detail. And then the day of surgery, I discuss things with the family member. But it's a lot happening all at once. And I think that for most patients, and I've had this myself as, as a patient, until you've gone through it and the surgery is behind you, a lot of those things, the, the questions don't really creep up until a, a couple of days after surgery. And so <clears throat> I really do think that the three-day post-operative check is, is just a very nice uh, way to see these patients and make sure they're doing okay.
1: Right. And we don't necessarily have to start them in therapy on that day. Typically what we do is just a three-day check. And then after that, yeah. you know, we, we talk to the surgeon say, when do you want them to get started on a formal basis? And then at that point uh, we get them started. But I will have to say all of those who do the three-day post-op protocol do much better than everybody else. Um, yeah, got her, got
0: her.
1: Um, so um. it's one of these things that I'd like to try to establish a little bit more and get people into the routine of doing it. I know it's something that's new um, and there haven't been really any studies on it, but but uh, just seeing from from what we're doing, uh, it seems to really be beneficial and helpful. So
0: yeah, um,
1: that's been great. Um, so, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about as far as uh, total shoulder replacement or shoulder surgery?
0: No, I think uh, that the, you had touched on this a little earlier, but the, the communication between the, the the therapist or if you are taking care of someone uh, in the outpatient setting and they've just had surgery. I'm a big proponent of of communication. Uh, If they're any of my patients, I'm happy to talk with anybody about them directly. I try very hard to put as much detail on the prescription for therapy as possible. And as you talked about it, you know, as far as rotator cuffs, there's a big difference in how we treat a one centimeter single anchor repair versus a massive repair with a subscapularis repair. I mean, it, it all goes into the basket of rotator cuff repair surgery, but they are very, very different patients. And so I would encourage everyone, whether you're a a physical therapist or a a nurse practitioner, anybody, uh, if there's any questions, just talk to the person who did the surgery. Uh, You know, reverse shoulder replacements, even though they're getting to be done more and more routinely, a lot of people are still unfamiliar with it. Uh, And and same with shoulder arthroplasty. Again, it's just not as as, as common as, as hip and knee arthroplasty. Uh, So, you know, feel free to, you know, ask questions and, and make sure that you have the information you need to take the best care of these patients.
1: Right, right, and I, I have to reiterate this. This was a uh, something I talked about in a previous podcast, and it's how to connect with specialists better. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you connect with a specialist, it's important that you make yourself a bullet list of the things you need to ask. Make sure that um, you know they're they're good questions. They relate to the problem. And uh, because you know, like people like Dr. Ronowitz, they're very, very busy, um, and they've got a full schedule, and they really don't have a lot of time to yeah. to spend on the phone. So uh, you want to make sure that. That uh, when you do have a conversation, you, you let them know who you are talk about the patient any concerns and um, you really knock it out as quickly and as efficiently as possible so if you ever want to learn how to connect with a specialist better uh, please go to that podcast and listen to it it's uh, it's really gives you a lot of little tidbits and uh, what I what I say in that podcast is you know why does my cell phone um, have a full contact list of uh, specialists uh, throughout the state of Maine um, and I think it's the approach that we have and that we're very timely and uh, we get really rid- really close with the diagnosis when we send somebody over. So it's, uh, it, it just makes sense. So um, make sure you go over and check that out. And uh, I think you'll find that your connection with specialists will be a lot better. And then we'll have this open relationship like we do right now uh, and can talk about, you know, just about anything.
0: Yeah I, yeah, I absolutely agree. And you, you know, just to reiterate that you guys do a, a wonderful job at that. And so we, I, you know, I know you appreciate it on your end. And, and, and so do we as, as the surgeons, knowing that they're in great care after surgery.
1: Great. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ronowitz, I need to thank you so much for being on the show today. I know that you're very, very busy. Uh, You do an excellent job with the patients that you see. Everybody loves you. And uh, we've had, uh, you know, patients with excellent outcomes. So uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. And um, you're welcome on the show anytime. If you ever have another topic you want to talk about, let me know and uh, we'll chit chat about that.
0: All right. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Okay,
1: great. Have a good day.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.